0: for the first couple weeks is we're taking a long look, and we do this in our UO we take the Bible seriously enough that we sit down and look at text for a while. We're looking at a particular part of John's Gospel that's called the Farewell Discourse. Uh, Jesus has told his men that he's about to leave, uh, and that means he's about to die, and uh, and he spends the next five chapters preparing them for his departure. We're calling this the Farewell Lecture. It's uh, five chapters of Jesus preparing his followers for life without him, as we jump into our text today, I want I want to try to help you understand what it might have been like for them, okay? These followers of him have left everything to follow him because they have great expectations of who Jesus is and what he's going to do, right? They left everything because they believed Jesus was going to change the world. He was bringing the kingdom of God to bear. And uh, so they have all these great expectations. And here, in chapter 13, Jesus is going to tell his, his followers, No, I'm leaving. I'm dying. And one of you is going to betray me. Can you imagine what it must be like to be them? The depth of disappointment. The utter confusion. You've you got to imagine, again, the highest of expectations. They left everything to follow him. He's going to change the world. No, I'm actually dying. One of you is going to betray me. And you can imagine them asking the questions, well, eventually, in the midst of their confusion, what do we do now? Now what? What do we do? That might be hard for you to imagine. I think as we dive into our text today, it will become a little more apparent to you Not only does it make sense, but maybe your life's a little bit more like theirs than you imagine. We're only going to be talking about verses 6 to 17, but I'm going to read all of 1 through 17. So John chapter 13, you can follow along up there. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And uh, I completely lost my place. There we go. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant's not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, the blessed are you if you do them. And right, I'm going to pray, and we'll jump in. Great Father, I thank you uh, for these students who've turned out tonight, and we pray you'd be kind in our weariness, in our distractedness, uh, to sharpen our minds, and in all our internal busyness, would you soften our hearts. And help us to see uh, you, Lord Jesus, in this text, and what you have to say to us when I see things your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. But if confessions I start tonight, I find myself continually raising the music stand. Because I, I lost my Bible. And I keep finding all these Bibles that have incredibly small print. And uh, I know this probably looks ridiculous. But uh, it's not as ridiculous as me constantly losing my place. So anyway, here we go. Uh, A little quiz to make you feel good. I'm pretty sure you almost all know the answer to this. Uh, This is not really a game. Um, So I'm I'm uh, going to name a character and and part of a a plot to a movie, and you're going to tell me the name of the movie. I'm pretty sure you'll do really well in this. Okay, ready? Elephant learns to fly once he lets go of Lucky Feather. Yeah, see? You're really good at this. I knew. <laughs> Fat Panda hopes to become Kung Fu Master. Uh, sewer Rat dreams of becoming French Chef. Yeah, yep. Yeah. 8-bit villain longs to be video game hero. Wreck-It Ralph. Okay. 8. Wreck-It Ralph. Yeah. You're already down to a B. You're down to a B. Uh Unscary Monster Pursues Career as Top Notch Scarer. Okay. Now we're uh now we're into the extra credit portion of the of the game. Uh Garden Snail dreams of racing glory. Yeah. Crop duster aims to compete in wings around the globe. Planes. Yeah, Yep. Extra credit. There you go. Okay. You, you, you did well as I thought you would. Okay. Uh, so besides being animated films, all these messages, um, all these uh, movies have another thing in common. They all share one basic message. And it can be summed up basically from one snail to another in turbo like this. It's in you. It's always been in you. You never give up. All these movies are about the pursuit of greatness, of overcoming obstacles, of finding your internal greatness and doing something epic. Every single one of these movies. And um, yeah, that's the basic message of these films, that you can do something great, something beyond your normal abilities, because somehow there is greatness inside of you. So let's leave the animated world for just a second. Make our way over to this world. There's been an American freshman survey given every year for 47 years. It's now been administered to about 10 million freshmen. And uh, what's become apparent over 47 years is a couple of things. One, every generation thinks they're smarter than the generation before them. Um, And every generation thinks more highly of themselves each successive generation. Not just are you smarter than the old people, you actually think you're smarter than your peers. In other words, everyone thinks they're above average. And increasingly, everyone, so like, for instance, my generation, 60% of us may have thought we were above average. And now like 70% of your generation thinks you're above average. Makes sense? Um, so, on top of that, there's this growing sense of a pursuit of greatness, your generation wants to be great, a desire to be great, to make a, a significant impact on the world, and I think that's fantastic. But what's also increased over these 40 years, along with this sense of esteem and greatness, are a couple of interesting but troubling phenomenon. Anxiety and depression among students. I don't think it's an accident. And a number of scholars have looked at these things and said, what's happening as, as a bit of an ambition inflation that everyone expects everything to be great and to do great, and then they get into the real world and it doesn't happen. And they go from this great desire for greatness and this belief that they can do everything, and then somehow the world just doesn't work that way. And they go from elated, inflated, to deflated. In other words, it's quite possible for you To expect greatness, get into the real world, feel betrayed, and be left asking, now what? In other words, you you can be very much like the disciples. and I, I'm not, I don't want to put this at your feet. So this is your fault. Yeah, it's, it's not your fault. And let me, I've been calling timeouts a lot lately in sermons. Timeout. Uh, this is not going to be an old man, angry rant. That you young millennials, get out of my front yard and stop being so optimistic. I, I, that's not my cons- <laughs> That's not really what I'm trying to do here, I promise. Um, I, I promise that's not what I want. That's not what I'm trying to do. But what I do want us to see is that uh, you, me, all of us, that so we, we currently live in a culture where where you expect for your study and your work to be great. And to, to, you have this assumption that if you just keep doing great things and building your greatness as you strive to do more and more epic things, that life will hand over to you all its good things security, joy, peace and love that if you're just great enough you'll get all the good stuff. That's sort of the story. And it's in you. You just gotta find it. You just gotta do it. And you expect to be able to do that and you expect the world to agree. Like you expect the economy to agree and the broader culture to agree. And actually you also expect even God to agree. Like this is this is my your plan for my life, right, God? I'm gonna do all these great things and you're gonna give me all my good stuff, right? And uh, that's sort of our, our, our current cultural belief about the way to greatness and to happiness. And I think when we read the Bible, we actually, while we're trying to like, climb the path to greatness, if we'll just look around, we might actually see Jesus going the opposite direction. He might be going the opposite direction. Um, see, I, I don't, I don't want to poo-poo the old angry man rant. It's not what I'm doing. What I want for you is what this text wants for you. And what this text describes is a different path to greatness that ends, in verse 17, with a description of a blessed life. That word blessed, at the end of verse 17, it's a really important one. It's actually what you all want. The word is a rich, thick word in the original language. It means happy and whole and holy. One whole, like not separated, divided, scattered, one whole, happy, holy person. Who doesn't want that, Right? Jesus says there's a way to the blessed life. And it's not in the direction we think. What we're going to see is the great life that God loves is found in following Jesus to the bottom. The great life God loves is found in following Jesus to the bottom. And so uh, if we will, if you will imagine we're charting a course for this great life that Jesus wants us to live. That delivers us into this blessedness. And I'm going to give you a little overview, the itinerary, to how to find it. And, uh, you know, if, if we were like intrepid travelers, I would say, first, we have to climb the impossible mountains. And then we have to swim the, uh, the dangerous depths of the oceans that no one's ever crossed. And then if we survive that, then uh, you have to eat sand for five years. Uh, because the, the, path, the path doesn't sound very appealing. This is what it looks like. We have to admit our ignorance. We have to acknowledge our need, and we have to assume the lowest place. It's what this text describes as Jesus' path to greatness. So, starting with the first one, acknowledge our ignorance. Oh, that's a tough one. And uh, if you read this text pretty carefully, you see Jesus has a great concern for their understanding. Uh, you, you see it lastly in verse twelve, he after he's was washed their feet, he asks, "Do you understand what I've done to you?" He wants them to understand, but they find it particularly difficult. And to set the stage to go back, Jesus is trying trying to wash his disciples' feet. There's a big point to be made here, and we'll get to that. And and they're resistant. And, and Peter, as Jesus approaches uh, Peter in this posture of a servant to wash. Wash his feet. Peter just asks, are you going to wash my feet? He doesn't understand. And uh, he, he's finding it particularly difficult to understand what Jesus is doing. All the disciples feel the same, but Peter always speaks up. Because this is so countercultural to what he does know. Peter knows that great men are not supposed to wash the feet of their followers. They're just not. But he doesn't know a lot of other things. And Jesus says in verse 7, in response, Peter, what I'm doing, you don't understand. You see that in verse 7? What I'm doing, you do not understand now. In other words, there's information lacking. You can't make a proper interpretation right now. You need more info, and it's coming. And he promises in verse 7, But afterwards you will understand. Time is coming, Peter, when there will be enough evidence... For you to make sense of what's happening right now. And what Jesus says with that word afterwards is, there's an event coming that will make sense of what I'm doing right now. And, and he's talking about the cross. That he will soon die. And when that happens, two things will become very clear to Peter. One, that this was necessary. And two, just exactly how far Jesus is willing to go in his love for his people. The depth of his need. And that the cross provides the interpretive key for why Jesus is doing all this. But here's what I want you to see real quick. This is the most important thing about this point. They don't get it, and it's okay. At this point, he doesn't get it, and it's okay. He tells them, you don't understand, but you will. Do you understand? And what we see here is that coming to understand Jesus and what he offers is a process. It's a process. He wants them to understand. That's why he asks in verse 12, do you understand? No, they don't. But he wants them to But he also knows they don't. And he's okay with that for now. And uh, that's an important first step for us on the path to understanding and growing. Whoever we may be, wherever we may be, we need, whether we're Christians or not, to be able to admit that we don't know everything we need to know. Um, One of my most encouraging interactions in RUF happened seven years ago this fall, after a large group. And... uh, I know the person very well Uh, I didn't know them at the time They were freshmen After a large group They walked up with tears in in their eyes And they said Can I talk to you? And uh, Sure Of course I assumed there would be some great emergency Um, But there wasn't necessarily Instead as I walked out And talked to this uh, This freshman She asked Is it okay if I come to your group? I was like Of course She's like No, no, you don't understand I'm not a Christian I'm like, well that's okay, RUFS a group for all kinds of people. We want to be a place where people can come and ask their questions and figure it out. She's like, No, no, you don't understand. I don't I don't know anything about Christianity. I know nothing. I was like, Well, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not true. I'm sure you know more than you than you think. She's like, No, no, I don't know anything. And uh, and time proved she was right. <laughs> she knew nothing. Why is this an encouraging conversation? Because she came. She admitted what she didn't know. I went home last night. But she's in my living room talking to my wife. Like, the process is beautiful. And Jesus is open to it. He starts with where we are. And you need to be able to admit what you don't know. And it's okay. This is how we begin the path of greatness that Jesus wants us to walk. So the first step on the path to greatness is to acknowledge our ignorance. And that's hard for some of us. The second one's even harder, I think. We have to admit our need. So the first one is, we have to know that we don't know. Our second is, we need to need need. (laughs) Got it? We have to admit that need is necessary. And uh, we sort of see this personified in the person of Peter. Jesus approaches Peter to wash his feet. and And Peter responds, You shall never wash my feet. And Peter could not have said this any stronger in the original language. There's no way to say no more strongly than he did. And uh, those of you who have been in my home, you know my wife is is Ukrainian. She speaks Russian to her kids. I know almost nothing. In Russian, except occasionally when uh, my kids ask me for something and I want to say no as strongly as possible, I will break out all the no Russian words I know: nikida, and it's like no, never, nothing. Like I just, if it's got a no in it, I just throwing nos at them everywhere, and uh, and it's sort of funny, but they get it right. and and, and Peter is saying no, no, no. You will never, ever, ever wash my feet. Now, what's the big deal about feet? We started talking about this a little bit last week. we got to come back to it. and And I explained a little bit that in the ancient world, there is absolutely no record of a a superior ever washing the feet of an inferior. And we have lots of ancient documents. Not in the Jewish world, or the Greco-Roman world, or the Latin world, anywhere else. Did a teacher wash the disciples' feet? Or or a commanding officer do the same? Uh, This was the job in the ancient world, whatever culture, of the most menial of servants. The Jews actually argued whether it was even okay for servants to wash feet. Because, you know, feet are dirty. But but you don't understand how dirty. So let me step back. Tell a story. This goes way back to last night. Um, <laughs> so last night, uh, forgetting that I'm in Pittsburgh where it rains, even when it's not supposed to, um, I, I was wearing these. And it's raining tonight. And um, and these are not supposed to get wet. They're just not. I was warned that if they got wet, they would get ruined. So I, I packed them up in my backpack. And I was walking through Oakland barefoot. Yeah, I heard some of you. I see some of your facial expressions. Now, I didn't walk through South O. I wasn't walking on broken glass or used condoms or any number of other things that you might encounter in South Oakland. I was walking on Forbes Avenue, okay? What? Uh, not too far. And, uh, anyway, now here's the, here's the picture of the full picture of the day. I took a shower in the morning. I worked out at noon, and in typical Derek fashion, I didn't break a sweat. But I took a I took a shower anyway, two showers in the day. When I got home from walking the streets of Oakland, did I need to take a shower? Yes. No. The answer is yes. I needed to wash my feet, though, <laughs> thoroughly. Or at the knee, some of you. <laughs> and so I gave my, my feet a thorough scrubbing when I got home. Um, that's sort of what's going on here. That's the big picture, that, that the streets of the ancient world were much more filthy than the streets of the day. No street cleaners, animals everywhere, and, and no public sanitation that goes down pipes into sewers. People literally threw their crap out the window. So, so no one should wash anyone's feet. Get it? I mean, that's why they were debating. That's like, no one should have to do this job. And Jesus is moving toward his men to wash his feet, and Peter is saying, "Never, never, 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 never." Deeply ashamed and embarrassed. Um, but Jesus isn't backing down. They're all aghast. Why? Why? Why would you possibly do this? And Jesus' simple answer at first is, "You need this." It begins with need. If I don't wash you, verse eight. No wash, no fellowship. No sharing me. If I don't wash you, you don't belong with me. And and what Jesus is saying here, metaphorically, in this whole action is, Listen, my friends, if I don't cleanse you spiritually, we can't have a relationship. If I don't forgive you, we have no foundation for friendship. That's where it begins. That's what Jesus is saying to his people. I, I know this is embarrassing to you. I know you don't want me to go there. I know you don't want, to, you don't want me to see your filter or touch it. But if I don't cleanse it, we don't have a relationship. And, and so Jesus is calling his men and Peter to submit to his service. To submit to his cleansing. And and I don't think Peter really gets it. I think the way he he goes about it shows that he's got some hang-ups. But he gets it enough to submit. Not my feet, but my hands and my head too. This is typical Peter. No, never. Okay, all of me, whatever. Um, Just vacillating wildly back and forth. Um, But once he understands that the relationship with Jesus starts with being known. And being completely, thoroughly cleansed by Jesus. He submits. And and that's what this looks like. That's what the foundation of the relationship with Jesus looks like. He doesn't quite get it, but that's okay. The relationship with Jesus is not about completely getting it right. It's about recognizing our need and admitting it. And letting Him cleanse us and forgive us. Instead of doing what we often do. Hiding. Protecting. Making promises that we'll get it right. Uh, And instead what He wants is to come and cleanse us all the way through, submitting to him and letting him clean us. And, and verse 10 makes it clean that what Jesus has in mind is not some temporary treatment. It's a complete cleansing. The one who's bathed is completely clean. Jesus is saying that the work he does and the work he'll do on the cross takes care of our sin once and for all. And that becomes a steady, secure foundation that you can know that there's a God in heaven that knows you, knows about you completely, and still loves you. It's beautiful. That's the foundation of the relationship. And so, you know, I have to ask the question now. Peter's in the chair doing this. How are you doing that in your life? What are you hiding? What are you pulling away? What are you ashamed of? What are you afraid to turn over? What do you think? There's no way. I'm going to let you touch that. not going to let you do it. What are you promising? No, let me just fix this myself instead of letting him cleanse. What is it? We have to move from admission to submitting, lastly, to committing. And in verse 10, Jesus says, Hey, if you're completely clean, all you need is occasionally for me to wash your feet. You're completely clean except for your feet. I think what Jesus is saying metaphorically is, Look, if you're my child and you trust in me, I will completely cleanse you forever. But Hey, I know the streets of Oakland are dirty. You may have been completely cleansed, but you walked down Forbes Avenue this afternoon. And I knew you did some things today that you weren't supposed to do. And I know you're carrying guilt and shame around. And you need to know afresh my cleansing and my forgiveness and my love. And that's why things like confession and repentance and coming regularly to hear the gospel, to know that He forgives us and loves us and has cleansed us, that's why it's important. You need to know these things. And that's a commitment to coming back to Him and being honest about who we are and what we've done. That's why it's so important. So we have a commitment here then to coming back to Him in honesty for cleansing. And, uh, yeah. I I would like to to spin this, but to spend it in a way that I think is completely honest or, or helpful and true. You get to be honest. You have to be honest. That's part of admitting your need. But, but if you know Jesus knows everything and loves you anyway, then you actually get to be honest. How many other people can you be completely honest with about everything in your life? Can you even be honest with yourself about everything going on in your life? You can be completely honest with him because he knows you and he loves you. And some of you you have you have pride standing in the way, a little bit like Peter. Never, never. It's it's what one of my commentators, friends, writers, who's a brilliant, called proud to be humble. Never, never. It's sort of, I'll fix it myself. I, no, uh, some of you, your pride is in the way, um, and uh, you, you need to know that Jesus didn't die so you could fix yourself. <laughs> he, did, he didn't die so you could fix yourself. He died so he could comp- cleanse, so he could cleanse you completely, and bring you into a loving relationship with Him. And um, and the rest of us, we need to know that He completely forgives us, and that means that we can be honest. We can live like. Almost no one else lives. We can be completely honest and know that we'll be loved. Do you know how many people want that? To be able to be completely honest and still know that they're loved? So, whew, we've got over two of the obstacles. We've, uh, we've had to acknowledge our ignorance and admit our need. And some of you are thinking, man, this is hard. And, uh, and, and, and yet we have to go on and go lower. We have to assume the lowest place. This is where the path of Jesus, the Jesus path of greatness leads here. Jesus who cleanses his followers, his men in verses six through eleven, is out to change them, to reorient them, to make them like himself, to give them a new kind of life. And we see that in verses twelve to seventeen. And they're called to imitate him, to imitate the great one. And in the first couple of verses make clear how great he is. He he's God's own son. And, and here, Jesus will put those kind of terms in his own mouth and say, Hey, you can... He probably didn't hit the thing when he was talking. He said, Hey, I, you call me teacher and Lord. And I am. I, I'm the great one. Um, if I then, your Lord and teacher, verse 14, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If I the great one have done this, how much more should you do it? You're called to imitate... The great one. If I'm your Lord and teacher, you should do what I do. And he goes on in verse 15 and says, hey, this is the example I've given you. That you should do this. And I think that word example is important. I think that communicates to us that what Jesus is doing here is he's not instituting a religion of foot washing. The Christians are not called just to wash feet. Um, So, you know, RUF would look very different if that's how we interpreted this. We would get together and wash each other's feet, and then we go home. And there'd be nobody here, because no one wants to do that. (laughs) Right? Now, Jesus is making the point, not that there's something special about this particular action. He's making a point here that it's exemplary in the sense that out of love, he is going to the lowest place in humility and helpfulness. And that we should do the same we should be people marked by such humility that we will lovingly serve each other in the most humble of ways. That's what he wants from us. To imitate us, to imitate him in that way. And he reminds them in verse 16, listen, listen, you're not too great for this. And some of us immediately go and think, maybe you're not thinking that right now, but there'll be times in your week where you think, I really should do that. But this is more important. And Jesus is saying here, actually, no, it's probably not. See, you're not too important for this. You're not too great. The servant's not greater than the master. The, the messenger's not greater than the one who sent him. I'm greater than you. I've got more important things to do than you do. And I'm washing your feet. So, you don't get to opt out because you're too important. Um, you know, Here, the Lord, the best human ever, God in the flesh, humbly serves. We're not too good for that. And it would be one thing if we were called to serve Him this way. Like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a complicated human, um, like most of you. And uh, I can imagine a profound love that I would wash Jesus' feet gladly. Because of all that He's done to me and for me. I would gladly wash His feet. But I don't want to wash yours. Not like that. no. Nah. Although, you know... Metaphorically, spiritually, pastorally speaking, I do. Um, Because God's been kind to change my heart and make make me a little bit more like Him. But it'd be one thing if we were just washing His feet, serving Him. But no, He doesn't ask you to do that. He asks you to do that to one another. To love others. So what does that look like? It means uh, being patient with your fellow students. It means listening to them even when they're complaining. It means forgiving them, not dismissing those that are proud or annoying, not running away from the painfully awkward ones, uh, not ghosting people. It means uh, making time for others when you're busy. It means you stopping, actually, maybe for a moment, and thinking about your floor, freshman, and asking, who have I not seen in a week? Where are they? Are they okay? And making time to go see if they're okay. That's what it looks like. And Jesus says in verse 17, If you do these things, you'll be blessed. This is the blessed life. This is a happy, holy, whole life. This is If you follow this path, God will actively bless this life. Um, and I know it's easy to think, if you, if you look at this, man, this sounds like loss all the way down. If I told my mom and dad I was going to do this, they'd say, well, son, that sounds good. I'm glad you're taking this religion stuff Seriously, and I'm glad you have some friends, but but don't go too far. You've got your work to do, and I, I am not being uh, subversive here. Um, I'm not. Please go to your classes and do good work, and strive to do great things. Okay, uh, but you need to know that the Jesus path of greatness is blessed. It brings peace and joy and love. And love is the most important. Rankin Wilburn, one of our fellow pastors, writes, Your win in this, what you win in this whole endeavor, this path, your win is becoming someone who loves. You get to become someone who loves. There's nothing better. There's nothing better than this. Current conditions for our culture. Imagine you're walking to the beach. Current conditions. The flag's up, and it says... Rip current. You can't see it. You can't see a rip current hardly, right? It looks fine. It looks like fun. And what you need to know is the current conditions, if you will, of our culture will drag you out in the pursuit and path of greatness and leave you there to flounder. Okay? That's what it'll do. You'll just think you have to do everything great all the time or you'll fall behind and life won't deliver its goods. And you don't have to live that way. You can get out of that current. There's another path to greatness. You can be a great student and live this way and know his peace and love and joy. I'll finish with a quick story. In uh, 2009, there was a football player named Jason Brown. He signed a five-year, $37 million contract. That's a lot of money for someone who plays offensive line and center. He's a very good player. And in 2012, he walked away, not because he was old, he's only 29, not because he had a concussion, he didn't, not because he was hurt, he was fine. He, uh, he walked away to farm, to start a farm. As his agent told him, you're making the biggest mistake of your life. And that was a reasonable assumption because Jason Brown didn't know anything about farming at all, nothing. Nothing. He asked him, how did you learn to farm? He's like, well, like everybody else, I watched YouTube videos. <laughs> and um, and uh, in subsequent years, he, someone sat down with him and asked him, you know, do you, do you miss success? And he's like, success? I've never felt more successful in my life. When you see these beautiful things pop out of the ground, man, it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. But what about the greatness you passed up of being known in the NFL? And he responds, I think a life of greatness is a life of service. And that's what he does. He donates his crops. 2014, donated five acres, 100,000 pounds of sweet potatoes. And uh, he has like 10,000 acres, so he plans to donate a lot more. That's what Jason Brown does. And uh, I lost the second page, so I don't know what else he does. Um, <laughs> no, actually, I do know what he does. Um, he, he basically went on to say, Listen, in, in the currency that we have, the most important thing we can give away... Is love, and so he walked away from the world's greatness to give away love, and he's done it, and it's beautiful, and it's enriching to his own life. and And I, I want you to hear that you can be a great student, and you should, and you can pursue great grad schools, and you should do that too. But you need to know that the real things you want out of life, they're here. They're in a path of greatness that Jesus leads in a different direction where you have to know what you don't know and be able to admit it and admit your need and be honest about who you really are and be willing to take the path in the place of lowest service. And there you will know love. His love and the ability to love others as well. I'm going to close each week, the rest of the semester, with just a verse of Jesus from the book of John. This is what He wants for you. These are His words. From John fifteen eleven, These things I have spoken to you that his joy, that's Jesus' joy, may be in you and that your joy may be full. Okay? Let's pray. Our great Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, what you've done.